Begin transmission. Transmission. The Frontline Gaming Network presents Art of War. Strategy and tactics. Discussions with the best players on the planet. The Frontline Gaming Network presenting Art of War with Nick Nanavati and John Damaris. Hello, Art of War family, and welcome to another edition of the Art of War podcast. I'm your host, John Damaris, and today we are doing something different. Obviously, with the announcement of the new edition, a lot of things are changing in the game, and we kind of thought that discussing specific army lists that are no longer going to be valid in, I don't know, a couple weeks didn't make any sense. So we've invited a very good player, John Lennon, to help us break down what's going on in 9th edition. And in this first episode, we're going to talk about all the changes and sort of what it means on a macro level for the game. And then in episode two, John is going to talk about specifically Gene Steeler Cult and how he sees the changes affecting them in this brave new edition. Uh, as always, I'm joined on the podcast by the one and only Nick Nanavati, who doesn't really need an introduction, but I'm going to try to do it anyway. He's basically won everything ever in Warhammer 40K and is one of the best known players for being very good for a very long time. He's going to help us break down this discussion along with John, and I'm going to add in my two two cents here and there. Uh, Nick, why don't you go ahead and introduce John, and let's get started on our discussion. Yeah, so John has been a no stranger to our podcast. He's been on multiple times, both as the interviewee and as the interviewer. Um, he's also one of our coaches here at Art of War, and he was number three in the ITC last year, snagging best in space money, which is a pretty hard title to achieve. Um, so John's no stranger to 40k either. He's been playing for a long time. I'll let him talk about that. But he's seen some edition changes. Uh, much like myself, I've been playing since fourth edition. So this will be fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth. This will be my fifth edition change. So we want to really focus on how to transition because I think that's something that very few players, especially as the game's expanding, those of you who started in eighth edition or towards the tail end of seven, don't really understand. And that's where we want to try to help. So I have John here. Um, I'll let him introduce himself, but. We're all here to have a roundtable kind of discussion about ninth edition and what we know so far and how to apply it. Thank you, as always, for uh, having me on the podcast. I really appreciate you know all the times I get to come on here. Um, yeah, I've been playing uh, just like Nick since fourth edition, so I've seen this game change quite a bit. Um, I'm a more recent name to competitive 40k. I really took advantage of the transition from seventh to eighth. Uh, I think edition changes are a really good time to kind of change your game if you want to be a more competitive player. Everyone's going to kind of start off at ground zero at the same time. It's a really good opportunity to make that leap if you've thought about going hard at Warhammer for a while. Definitely. So why don't we just kind of start from the top and cover some of the big changes that I think everyone wants to know. What does this mean? How does this work? And what is happening? And I think the first and foremost one is the board change. That's kind of 40K and all the time I've known it has been played on six foot by four foot, 72 by 48 table. And now it's not. Uh, first, do you guys think this is going to be taken in by the community well and by the tournament scene? And then two, what does this mean competitively for your armies? I, I think it's absolutely going to take hold. Um, you know, you've seen a lot of uh, conversation online about how you know, it's a minimum, not the only size. So people just play on their six by four as always. I'm sure that will last for a couple of months, but realistically i think almost everyone is going to end up adopting it um it sounds like all of the major events in the united states uh as well as uh, a couple in canada and uh, i think the wtc have all kind of announced that they're going to be using the recommended smaller size 
So at that point, once everyone starts practicing for that, it'll start to feel natural. And I doubt Games Workshop's going to go back anytime soon. I think within six months, everyone's going to be playing on it. Yeah, and I want to just add my two cents in here really quick. Uh, speaking as somebody who's organized you know, 120-person tournaments, and just point out why this is actually a really beneficial change for all of us. Uh, Nick knows that I say this all the time. I always say this stupid saying, and I'm sure he's sick of hearing it, but high tide floats all boats, right? And so what you have to understand about GW changing the table size is this isn't necessarily about uh, competitive play. What it is about is making the game more approachable for more players as they want to grow the player base. And as the player base grows, that's better for all of us, right? Because it means the company makes more money, which allows them to do more cool stuff for us and makes the game grow. So the, the, the board size, from what I understand, and I haven't had this confirmed by GW, but one of the discussion points that I've kind of heard in the background is that is a standard kitchen table size. So anybody that wants to play can literally play that size game on most standard kitchen tables. It's also the same size as four of their Warcry maps, or uh, I forget the other one, um, that, that kill team maps, right? So it allows, allows people that get introduced to the game through kill team to naturally expand into 40K in a very natural and very easy way. So again, this is great for all of us um, from that perspective in that it's going to help make a less a smaller barrier to entry for new players and it allows us to build bigger events because it takes less space to put those tables up which means the same size venue can actually have um, more players in it which is going to obviously make bigger events possible um, in smaller spaces which is great for everybody who's organizing events so it's it's a really good thing overall for the game now, impact on the gameplay itself, well, that'll have to be remain to be seen, but we'll talk about that as part of this discussion, I would imagine. Yeah, so, I mean, that's really what I want to get to, but before we do that, I, I completely agree. There's a lot of people who are reluctant to change, and that's human nature, I totally understand. But like John said, while those holdouts might hold out for as long as they can, the big players in the game, FLG, Nova Open, WTC, Adepticon, the largest event runner, and LGT, the largest event runners in the world, have all come out and said it, which means every competitive tournament player will be adapting as well. And conversely, every local game store who runs RTTs will then also adapt to cater to their competitive side community. There's going to be some RTT, some game stores that are just like, yeah, play whatever you want, who cares? And there'll be players who play in the basements or just go to their store locally and have fun, whatever. But we're this is obviously competitive-driven podcast. We're not talking about those guys. Everyone's free to do whatever they want. But I do agree. It is going to be adopted. Now, this isn't about how what to do with your mats. I, I don't care. Cut them up, put tape on it, just pretend, whatever. But we're going down in size, not up in size. Your 6x4 is fully functional for this game. There's no reason to get the pitchforks out, guys. So <laughs> it, it's going to be like literally nothing has changed from a do you have to buy something standpoint. So from a gameplay standpoint, let me ask you guys, what impact do you think it's going to have in the game? Do you think it will speed the game up and bring people to blows quicker? Um, so to, to kind of force the action a little sooner in the game, do you feel like that's an uh, intended impact? or? Yeah, um, I think we are actually, we might need to kind of wait and see what the deployment zones end up looking like. Because um, I think we've only seen one deployment zone for the new size board which, as I recall, was um, table quarters, which is always going to be the one where you kind of deploy close to each other anyway. So what I'm really curious about is, is Dawn of War going to be 
24 inches apart and they just make your deployment zone a little shorter? Or are they still going to be 12 inch zones and now there's only uh, 20 inches in between people? Um, I think that's one of the questions that uh, is going to make a difference, but definitely people are going to be shooting each other pretty much with their whole army in turn one. Um, well, that, that brings up an interesting point. So, um, yes, the board is getting shorter, which means the relative range of weapons means shorter weapons are more powerful, longer range of weapons are redundant. If the board is 60 inches wide, having 72 inches doesn't really matter. And having 36 is kind of like today's version of 48. So, while that's all true, from my understanding, the terrain, amount of terrain, I should say, isn't going to change. Especially when you think about it logistically, again, from the perspective of tournaments and event organizers, every table they've set up has you know, two ruins, two hills, two L's, whatever it might be. They're set up for, tra- for tables. They're not just going to take it off unless UW recommends it. I don't think, based on what UW said, they're going to recommend that. So that means the same amount of terrain, let's call it, 33% of the table, just hypothetically speaking, of the board currently on the 6x4 is taken up by terrain. Some percentage of that is block line of sight terrain. Some percentage of that is like nonsense terrain like forests. So, one, we're getting terrain rules for forests. Presumably, that means the block line of sight to some degree to provide some meaningful amount of cover. Things like craters might have an impact besides just being an annoying place to stand up your models. So, if the, if the terrain people are already playing with now is more terrain functionally and the amount of terrain on the table doesn't change but the table size gets smaller terrain density gets higher so now we have an increase on two fronts of terrain we have more terrain per inch more terrain per square inch of the table and more terrain that does something because all those forests now do something so i don't actually think shooting armies sands and direct fire will be more powerful i think they're actually going to become less powerful despite the range becoming less of an issue you know, another interesting point about that is with the new, and we don't have the specifics about this, but with the newly announced um, reserve rules where you can reserve anything, right, to come in as an outflank later in the game or potentially on the back, your opponent's table edge, will also sort of play into that, right? We may be closer to each other, but you you may not have to deploy the thing that you really care about. Maybe you, you put your tank or two tanks in reserve um, to come on on turn two. Uh, on your back border edge so they don't get alpha right off the table or whatever. I mean, we don't know how all of that's going to work, but there's there's a lot of things that are changing. So the table size is one part of that picture, but I think there's a lot of other things, like you said, the terrain, the reserve rules, that are actually going to take the alpha strike a little bit more out of the game than it was in the current edition. I don't know. What do you guys think of that? Definitely. And to, to that point, again, John, I'll jump on what... Sorry. To your point again, Damaris, I'll let Lennon chime in here in a second. There's too many Johns here. Um, they, I've heard a lot of counter-argument to that. Yeah, you can reserve anything, but that just made the boards getting smaller, just easier to screen out your reserves. We have no clue how reserves are changing. At least I don't. I I don't think anyone who's, not, who's able to talk about it knows. So maybe showing up nine inches away or not being able to show up at all isn't a concept anymore. It hasn't been a concept for the entirety of the first seven editions of 40K. Why would it necessarily have to stick around now just something to think about we only know what we know i do know that we only know what we know nick thank you um so i i do i agree wholly you know if we're putting the same amount of terrain on a smaller board and then giving it more rules shooting will be less powerful um an interesting counterpoint to that is that short range shooting is generally more powerful a demolisher cannon is more powerful than a battle cannon 
but everyone took the battle cannon because they were concerned about getting the, the demolisher cannon in range. Um, if people start applying that short-ranged, more powerful firepower logic, then shooting may become more devastating when they get to employ it. Uh, because a demolisher cannon is functionally, I think it's the same points cost as a battle cannon, or it's within, it's very close. Like you could easily just change it in your list, drop one guardsman, and you're, you're golden. Um, so the short range, like, yeah, you may be able to shoot less, but you may be killing everything you shoot at now. Like if you just took your three battle cannons, to stay with the example, turned them into three demolishers, maybe only one unit is in line of sight, but oh boy, that unit's gone. Well, you bring up a really interesting point again with that. So you're right. A, bat, a demolisher cannon is more powerful than a battle cannon. Hurricane bolters are probably the most efficient gun in the game, point for point. It, and these are all 24-inch range weapons. You're not wrong at all. Even things like diary on adventures, I have success with it when I couldn't get them into range. So, uh, and like thunder fires on the converse, you're paying a lot of points for not that many shots just because it says long range ignores line of sight. So, you're not wrong at all. But remember, the entire game is getting readjusted. So. It is entirely possible, and I've not seen the point values, of course, but it is entirely possible that short-range weapons like the Hurricane Boulder go up in cost or down in volume. Probably not down in volume because point codecs aren't going to be done like that, at least not yet. But go up in cost to compensate for the fact that, yeah, board smaller, 24-inch range is stupid, and this is 12 shots for 10 points. So that's a perfect opportunity here for them to rebalance the game with respect to that. Thing you've noticed yeah that, that's that's a pretty good argument there so um definitely uh, you know obviously we haven't seen everything so that will always make a difference um i do think overall the changes that we know of will probably make shooting a little less powerful um i've heard rumors that tri-pointing isn't going to be a thing but um i haven't seen gw confirm that so if that's not true if tri-pointing does remain the same then this would almost certainly become a more melee oriented game uh which i, I, would I agree and honestly to the point of tri-pointing, I've also heard those rumors. I have no idea if it's true or not. Um, there was a GW written article on the Warhammer community page, I don't know, maybe in early May or mid-April, late April, something along those lines, well past the thought process of a ninth edition, presumably, um, since it's relatively recent history, where they taught people how to rap. So I'm not saying that's anything to take to the bank, but... If they're writing articles on how to rap, I imagine to some capacity it still exists with the ninth edition. But also, as someone who plays melee armies all the time, like Tyranids, like Orcs, like Harlequins, I find currently in eighth edition I rarely rap anymore. Things are just so potent now, and people are so well ready to be rapped that unless I'm playing something like Tau, of course, I, I'm either going to die to a counter charge or even just the thing I'm rapping. Like five scouts, as you know, John will just annihilate like 15 acolytes in close combat trying to wrap them. So wrapping I've used less and less as a tactic the more 40k has evolved to 8th edition. So I'm not too worried about whether or not wrapping being gone is going to make or break assault armies in 9th edition, to be honest. And we do know there is going to be some sort of fallback mechanic, whether or not wrapping is a thing or not. Fallback will be there because all the latest Psychic Awakenings do reference fallback, and I'm sure they've taken that into account. And I, th I think they even made some sort of hint towards an engagement rule, whatever that means in the Warhammer community previews. So there's definitely something there for fallback to exist. Yeah, one of the um one of the new stratagems that they previewed, actually it might have been the only one they previewed, um, does relate directly to when a unit falls back from you. So we know that that will still exist. 
Right, right. What do you think, John? Father John. Yeah, I mean, um, I think it's it's a it's fair to say that we don't know exactly what's going to happen with the fallback roles, but we do know that they have a stratagem, for example, cut them down. So, you know, fallback clearly is, is going to exist. Like you're going to be able to do it. Um, and I think your point about, you know, combat because of really, I'm going to blame it, blame it on um, shock assault <laughs> really changed that math for a lot of people. I know that's not every, not every, uh, not every army, but uh, you know, rapid intercessors is just not a thing. Like, <laughs> just, it's just not worth it, right? Um, and and since Space Marines were like fifty percent of the armies, then that's that's why kind of why I think you feel that way. But bringing the discussion back a little bit, one thing that I'm kind of curious about is um, with the small the so smaller size. I mean, most of the time I've noticed, particularly in ITC, that the game happens in the center of the board anyway. And if it doesn't happen in the center of the board, the person that's not in the center of the board loses because of ITC, right? So we've seen a couple missions now. Do we think that board control in the center of the board is still going to be the primary goal of 40K? Because that's what it looks like to me, but I don't have quite the trained eye that you guys have, right? Um, and so that's, and, and being on a smaller board, it's it's going to sort of force engagement a little sooner, I think. What do you think? I would actually say that it looks, um, if not equally as important as now, perhaps even more important. Uh, the the ones that I, the one mission that I saw, um, and, I, and I don't know if this will be reflected in all of them, uh, it had secondaries that looked like they could be either holding or Kelly oriented, and then its primary looked like it was entirely objective based, and that means that you don't even have to be getting that kill kill more a turn that we you know were trained to think about. You can just get in the center. And I, I compare that to the Nova format, which is probably not a bad comparison since uh, I'm pretty sure that the same guy helped with both of those missions. Um, I was about to bring that up, actually. Not to interrupt you, I'll let you finish yeah, a second. But Mike Brandt, who came out on the Warhammer Canadian page when they released Ninth Edition's announcement thing, is also the CEO and runner, or was the CEO and runner of Nova Open. He has, he's a phenomenal 40K player. I've had the pleasure of playing multiple times myself. And believe me when I say he's one of the best players I've ever played. He even went on Team America on their ETC team last year. Nonetheless, he has a very specific approach to playing 40K, where it is very much movement-based. He runs the Nova Open. You can glean stuff from those missions. And it is all board control and things like that. So I would be shocked, flabbergasted, to use a big word, if that didn't bleed into the mission design for Ninth Edition as well. It, it certainly looks like it did. Um, the one that they showed had four objectives, all within striking distance of the center of the board. And that was all 45 points of primary uh, are tied to that. So, you know, maybe there will be other ones where the primary includes kill. But at the very least in that mission, it looks like you can get 45 points of primary and an indeterminate number of secondary points just for holding objectives. That's that's probably enough right there. Like, I, I, I think know, that's also this is the mission they chose to show us, at least the first one, the very first mission. I'm sure there's going to be more. This either means that they wanted to throw us on a curveball for some reason, which I, I can't understand why they would do that, or that this is the most well-rounded representation of what the new missions will look like. This is kind of what you can expect in a different way. I'm sure not all six missions or 10 missions or 20 missions will be the same, but this is the most, I, I would assume this is the most kind of in between of the, 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 all the different missions. Most yeah. best representation. That feels like a pretty reasonable thing to say. 
Okay. So given that the mission's going to drive us to the center of the board and drive us to board control, which I feel like ITC was doing already, right? In this it was packet that came out, which is now not really going to be a thing because ITC has already announced that they're going with the GW missions. Um, does the smaller board size matter that much if you're going to have to be on those objectives to be competitive in the game anyway? Um, I think it definitely does still matter, uh, mostly because you used to see a lot of armies, I know Nick has done this many times, who like to deploy extremely far back and then use their speed to get into the middle. Uh, certainly Eldar are a good example of an army that wants to do this. With a smaller board, you have less back to hide in. And being fast is always good for it. Like, you know, there's never been an addition where being fast was a detriment. Um, but maybe if you're less likely to hide from fast units of your opponent, and then they get in the middle, maybe you're at more of a disadvantage now, because you, be, you may not be able to evade those early hits if the early hits are ignoring line of sight while being mid-ranged, or if it's another fast melee unit. Like Kraken Gene Stealers, I think, could hit literally every inch of the board turn one at this point. Yeah, probably. So then we also don't know the new terrain rules, right? We are assuming that the world works the way that we know and love it, because what else do we have to go on? But small, subtle changes. Back in the day, tanks could drive through walls. And then one sentence in the rule book says tanks can't drive through walls. And now vehicles are entirely different with just placing the meta. What if infantry also can't walk through walls? Walls are actually walls and, you know, physics apply. So you can't just walk through them. Now all of a sudden those stealers have to go around those walls, that terrain that's more dense as we covered. So that would totally change the fact that units are going to be just as fast as they are. So Kraken, Stealers, and Swarm Lord is just going to be able to move 40 inches as it does now. But that 40 inches isn't a straight line through the table into your opponent's army. That is a zigzag around and through terrain where maybe forest rules would apply and they actually take some difficult terrain tests like they used to or something. Yeah, de definitely a lot of possibilities here. Um... I don't know how they're changing terrain, and I think that's the thing that we're all most looking forward to learning at this point. At least for me, that, that's what I'm the most excited about uh, getting leaked or previewed. Um, but I'm still, I'm still thinking that the go far back and then use speed to redeploy, that just doesn't seem as useful on a shorter board. Yeah, I mean, you you called me out like I am the kind of guy who plays like that. So I do. Strategy, I, I absolutely do it. So, so yeah, that strategy may simply just not exist anymore, and then we will have to adapt as players. And if you think about it, strategies that have come across editions often don't exist anymore. Seventh was all based on Death Stars. Eighth, everything died. It's the entire polar opposite. Mm -hmm. So being able to adapt like that across editions is ultimately what's kept players like you and I stronger through the editions. We adapt more quickly. So being able to find that stuff is, is really what will drive you to be a competitive player in the early phases of ninth edition, at least. All right. Well, let's, let's talk about it then. So we think that speed of units will, will mean a little bit less because the board is smaller. That makes sense. We think that long range weapons will mean a little bit less. That also makes sense. Um, just if you just apply logic, right? <laughs> we have a smaller board, so being able to move really far or be able to shoot really far, um, does that mean that screening is going to become a bigger part of the game, do you think? Um, I think it definitely, that, that is open-ended, and I'm not sure. So like, let's say that they don't really change the fact that Gene Stills can move through walls, then yeah, they can go across the table and charge you turn one, no matter where you are. There's no distance that you can be to survive that. That's where screening will become a lot more. So um, this is going to be very speculative, of course. 
Um, and this kind of ties into the detachment changes as well. I think screening will be less of a thing because in order to screen out deep strikes, you now need to cover less of the table. Um, you know, there's there's less board to screen out from deep strikes. You don't need as many bodies. Uh, for example, one five-man infiltrator unit can now actually remove a table corner from your opponent's deep strike. Just one infiltrator unit by itself takes an entire table corner just off, out of the grid. It's not in contention anymore. That's because they're a 12-inch rule, right? Yeah, they had the 12-inch one, to be clear. Um, space Marine infiltrators, yeah. Yeah, Space Marine infiltrators. I'm sorry, I should have specified. Um, so you may not need as many screens there. Um, as well, I think people being close to each other means that you may be seeing a, an increase in combat that crosses the board to kill you. And also the fact that you don't need as many troop choices, presumably, as you do in um, as you do in 8th edition. Because it's very common to have six or nine troop choices in an 8th edition army. Um, maybe you don't need that anymore. And suddenly you just have more hitters. And now your logic changes from... I'm going to make sure that they can't touch my powerful units to I'm going to take more powerful units. And if they kill the first one, the next three will be in line to curb stomp them. So we've often talked about having more queens than your opponent uh, as sort of a, a cornerstone of some very good players, you know, play style. They'll just basically be like, well, look, I'm going to trade a queen for a queen. I've got four queens. You've got three queens. That means at the end of the game, I'm going to have a queen that's going to run the table. Do you think that with the changes to army construction rules that will have less emphasis on troops, let's be honest, that we're going to see more quote unquote queens on the table and that that's, that's kind of the kind of game that we're going to see? It's possible, but I, I don't know that I agree with that we will have less troops assumption. Presumably you will run fewer detachments, certainly less battalions and brigades, because after you take your first free one, you pay a lot of CP to get the second one's the opposite of current. 40k. Right now, you're a large part of taking battalions and brigades, taking all those troop choices. The value to it is one, you, you get screens, which there's presumably less of a need for, and two, you get command points, which will work in reverse. That said, a large part of at least the one mission we've seen is you plant your flag or you have your unit do this role or do something, which we don't know how that works, but presumably it'll be along the lines of something like engineers or sappers. Somewhere you have a unit, it chooses not to make actions that turn to secure some victory points for you. That's very in line with something Nova Open has done before. ITC, which I'm sure also, to some degree, frontline gaming, Reese is a playtester, it's a well-known fact. They definitely weren't eluded, omitted from this conversation. So nonetheless, I wouldn't be surprised if you need units to be able to sit there and do nothing to score you victory points. That seems very straightforward. You, you don't want... A bunch of queens sitting there doing nothing. You want your pawns sitting there doing nothing. That will maybe you take troops anyway. Or I think you take things like solo beasts of Nurgle or two man beasts of Nurgle. It's just something too tough. You don't care if it does nothing. It didn't do anything in the first place, but it's never going to die. It's going to score you those points, that kind of thing. This episode is brought to you by HP Instant Ink. No one is reading your mind, but HP Instant Ink knows when your printer is running low and sends you new cartridges, so you never have to think about ink. Save up to 50%. You'll pay less than $5 a month for ink and never run out again. Find out if your printer is eligible and enroll today at hpinstantink.com. Conditions apply. For details, visit hp.com slash instantinkspotify. That all makes logical sense. Um, I could see the, those type of units like Beast of Nurgle replacing um, 
the need for some group choices. But I think of it as why not use a small unit of grotesques as a or or just any kind of big bruiser unit like that as your engineer type unit instead of the troops. Like you know, uh, three grotesques doesn't cost that much more than a rack squad. Why not just take the grotesques instead and then? Well, I mean, it does, so three grotesques is one hundred five currently. Of course, points will all change, and maybe grotesques will go up more than racks go up. I don't know, but currently three grotesques is one hundred five, and five racks is forty five. That's not insignificant. Yeah, but if you're taking three less rack squads, you could take like four grotesques and just use that instead. I, I guess that'd be uh, you, you'll have less units, and I think the points cost will also facilitate that idea. Here's the other thing to sort of consider. Um, they're changing the way detachments work. So it costs you CP to buy additional detachments. Uh, and it even I think they've even said souping is going to even be an additional cost on top of that. So I do think that you're going to be very incented to at least play a battalion at the minimum because it opens up your list design parameters, right? Because you can take three elites in a battalion. You can take three heavy choices. You can take fast attacks in your battalion. and Wherever you're the main detachments, you're going to see here a brigade and battalion because that you get one detachment free, and that those two open up the most overall slots. Correct. And I was saying, you know, but that's also going to require three troop choices. So there's going to be some troops in every list, I think, just by the way that that works. Like it, it sort of will naturally mean that every army will probably have at least three troop choices. <laughs> and that's that's actually now most armies typically do run six troops. I'd say I think double battalion plus a thing is probably the most common current eighth edition way to create an army now people run brigades people run eldar armies i've seen run three spearheads troopless eldar like who knows but i i would say two battalions in a thing is the most common and if you're right in that most armies will now be one battalion that is a 50 percent decrease in number of troops taken if you're just going for minimums do you think that is what we're going to start seeing i would think so um, I would think that just three troop choices, um, you take a battalion and things are a little more expensive now, you just fill out one good detachment. Um, GW seems like they've been making an effort to make more units viable in most codexes. Like, I, I think I could just... And also, um, detachments do have a lot of slots in them. Like, you can fit everything needed for a brigade in a battalion. So you can just take a brigade list and drop one or two fast attack choices, and it just naturally fits into a battalion at that point. So I, I would expect that the one battalion, and we don't know the cost of the, the other detachments yet, but I would expect that that's going to end up being the standard. So while we're on that subject, mono armies. A lot of armies right now don't exist as standalone factions. Things like demons is a great example. Things like space wolves offer up a wonderful supreme command to an imperial superlist and no one plays mono space wolves. So... Those factions, do you think they simply won't be seen anymore because it's too costly to now bring them as a support detachment for your soup army and opportunity cost of CP? Or are they going to find their own home, do you think, somewhere else? Um, I would say that I, I honestly expect that soup is still going to be a thing. Um, I just think it's going to go down to two detachments instead of three. I don't think you're going to see sisters and guard and space wolves. I think you're going to cut down to two of those three. Uh, and unfortunately, I think that'll hit chaos relatively hard just on what we know so far. Uh, I think soup is still going to find a way to be a thing. Yeah, I would agree. I can't imagine, at least 
with what we know now, competitively speaking, that soup will just go the way of the dinosaur. That said, I don't think um, I don't think you will have to be souping or getting bonus manufacturing rules like doctrines to be competing. You know. Well, I do think that 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 ends up being the question, right? Does the opportunity cost of losing whatever the number of CPs is make up for the fact that, uh, like, have they done a good job setting that balance to where monocodexes now compete with soup armies because of the additional CPs? That's the that's the, the million dollar question that we don't know because that's ultimately what's what if they did it right, then soup armies will be relatively as viable as monocodex armies, and the monocodex armies will make up the lack of flexibility that an additional codex brings you with additional CPs for more raw power in the uh, in the army, right? So I think that's a, that's an interesting thing to be seen, and my prediction is that that's what they were aiming for is to bring motto codex in line with the soup armies so that you can pick your way to play but we'll see no i I agree completely i think they want to empower the most ways to play possible that seems like a logical thing to do from a business perspective um to maximize people's happiness if you want to play a soup army they're not going to tell you you can't but they also don't want to break it to make it the way to play because that's easily done as we've seen in the past they also don't want to make monofaction armies broken, as we saw with Space Marines, which were just a tier above everyone else because doctrines were stupid. So having it be some sort of opportunity cost mechanism, while they still might have missed the mark, I don't know, where one being a monofaction is clearly better, being a soup is clearly better, whatever it might be, it is at least a logical attempt to make them on the even. Yeah, I, I think that it is going to end up being a lot more even than before. Um, I, I'm playing Sisters of Battle right now, and I think to myself, like, would I give up three command points to have access to indirect fire, which is just something that isn't in the sisters list or in their codex? Honestly, I would. But also, I I just don't think that I would be crippled if I didn't take it at this point. Um, you know, we're assuming that the game is, uh, if the game stays at six turns, then everyone's kind of talking like, okay, you start with 12, you get six, um, then you get 18 over the game. Um, so that like that's fine. But if if you told me I had to go down to 15, and then I got access to indirect fire. Yeah, I could play with that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Well, Speaking well, of which, I want to disclosure though, we we don't know what that cost is. Like we're sort of making an assumption, yeah. right? Right. That's that's yeah. true too. Yeah, that's we good. know the battalion, but like, at what point do you stop saying this is okay? Like, is it six command points worth it? I don't know. We're just guessing here. I'm just making a point. Mm-hmm. Um, so to that point, though, I do think indirect fire will become more valuable because, like I said in the beginning, I expect terrain density to be a lot higher because we're drinking. Not terrain stays the same, terrain density equals up. Also four sort of thing, allegedly. So things like indirect fire, especially things like 48 indirect fire, which, you know, for an indirect fire type of weapon, you want to put it in the very, very far back. So if you're not 72 or further, it is possible, or it was possible, currently it's possible, that your opponent can deploy corner-to-corner opposites and get out of the range of your indirect fire, maybe for a turn one dodging an alpha strike. In a shorter table, your 40-inch gun is going to shoot whatever it wants. So that's something also to consider. Indirect Nick, fire. I, I've, got a, value. I've got a question about that, though. Because of the way 40K works, in that you want to put your indirect fire out of line of sight, which means it's usually up near the terrain that's in the corner, right? And because the board is compressed, you're now closer to be touched by melee units or fast-moving units. Do you think that that's going to naturally counterbalance the value of indirect fire in that it's easier to get to uh, through movement than it would have been normally? 
I think you'll see something similar to what you saw in or could have seen in the LVO meta. And I wrote a, a nice article on this, right, as we were approaching LVO when they released their terrain format. What LVO did is they took a different stance to normal double L kind of terrain, and they put both giant line of sight blockers at the tip of your deployment zone. So you always have line of sight blocking your deployment zone, assuming you didn't roll like Dawn of War. Um, but it was at the front. So what that meant is your indirect fire was obviously going there at a point of sight at the front of your opponent's zone, and your opponent's army was also going behind the wall at the front of his deployment zone. So if the indirect fire player went first, it's going to get to shoot whatever it wanted and do some crippling alpha strikes, as we saw in some theoretical Imperial Fist list that almost made top eight, thanks to Mr. Lennon, they didn't. And then, conversely, we saw double, triple Shining Spears or other fast-type assault armies Deploy behind now, go first, win button, boom, I'm in combat turn one with half my army. So not that I'm saying that the terrain is going to be always corner of deployment to corner of deployment, that type of thing. What I'm saying is you might see a polarizing effect there where it is almost goes first wins. This is all theoretical, but if the game does get indirect fire heavy versus fast assault heavy, I'm pretty sure that's a goes first wins kind of game, which is not what I want. Yeah, I I would definitely just from what we know, that would be a fear of mine as well. Um, GW has said that their adjusting points cost, they're not just raising everything by 15% or whatever the number may be. Uh, supposedly, they're making the points changes based on the new rules and who may have gotten better. So maybe, just for example, I've noted if this is true, maybe they changed fly and fly no longer works in the charge phase. They would give fly units a points decrease. Maybe fly now works in every single phase and lets you deep strike better. They would give fly units a points increase. Maybe the playtesters kind of realized, okay, indirect fire is going to be a lot stronger in this meta. And maybe they've just like been a universal points increase on the various indirect fire weapons. That was going to be exactly my point. Maybe they've beat us to the punch here where we're acknowledging indirect fire as a potential issue. They're like, well, Thunderfires cost 200 points. And I'm pretty sure they're aware of that. Um, you know, they certainly, you know, recent Frankie and multiple other playtesters were present at LVO and they saw the horror that could be unleashed by all of those indirect pieces. Yeah, I don't think anyone is oblivious anymore to the fact that indirect fire is quite potent. Mm -hmm. so. Well, and let's let's think about this for a minute too. GW has proven at this point that if something is a huge problem and like destroying the competitive balance in the game, they will take swift action to fix it. Now, it may not be perfect at all times, and we may have periods of time where things are sort of out of whack, but it you know, you look at the Iron Hands nerfs that came in or the Space Marine nerfs that just came in recently, at least they're addressing issues as they become apparent backed up by the data. So I think that's anybody that's worried about the game being ruined, it's not going to get ruined because GW has shown that they'll fix it. Or if it's ruined, it'll fix itself within a few months. And I imagine just like when we transitioned from 7 to 8, there was a rough patch. I don't know if you guys remember oh. the birds versus the brims versus the ravens. No, no one was happy. But that didn't last more than like two months. So just give them a chance, guys. Give them a chance. Yeah. I also, I'm kind of expecting the 8 to 9 transition to be a little smoother. Uh, they're not rewriting everything. They're only rewriting the main rulebook. They're not rewriting every codex at the same time. So I think that there's less room for things to be bonkers. And also, the playtesters have been doing their job for longer. I assume that they naturally have become better at it as time goes on. So I'll, I'll have a little bit of faith until I see the result that they, it will not be as wild as the 7 to 8 Wild West. 
Yeah, I'd agree as well. It's also not a full, like you said, it's not a full rewrite. Seventh to eighth was two different games, just happened to be with the same models and the same lore. If nine feels more like an 8.5. Yeah. There's a couple of those things, like the the detachment change and the board that make it seem like it's going to be just a massive overhaul. But if they're keeping every single codex viable in ninth edition until they you know rewrite it at least like the rules mechanically work, then it, it cannot be as big of a change as 7-8. So I, I think it will be a lot easier to just kind of adjust into it. Yeah, fully agreed. I, I don't know how long you guys wanted to go on about this. I feel like we could speculate for days. Oh, um, I could. I have. You have. You have. I believe in your <laughs> chats. I know. <laughs> um, I do want to take a moment to explain kind of what we're talking about in part two of the episode. Um, we still want to bring value to our loving patrons. That's you guys. And we want to give you guys some knowledge that actually has meaning. So we are going to take in the guest experts as we typically do. So in John Lund's case, Gene Steeler Cult. And we are going to be talking in part two about what how they think those Gene Steeler Cult armies or Richard Siegler and his tower, whoever it may be, are going to adapt to what we know with ninth edition. Like Gene Steeler Cult in the Pacific is an army that needs 10,000 command points and now might not get that many. So how are they going to function? That kind of thing. So that's what we're going to talk about in part two in super detail, but as best we can anyway. Um, is there anything else you guys want to say here? I do want to raise one sort of last discussion point. We've sort of moved around it, but from a macro standpoint, from a list design standpoint, what do you think are going to be the tenets of good lists in ninth edition based on what we've seen like can we give the listeners something to be thinking about in regards to their own armies like it won't be specific to their army but but like for example do you think that list design will center around hard to kill things that can stand places for example um based on what we know i think having uh a big variety of units that are specialized in their roles so like these are the units i'm going to take to do damage to my opponent the Sanguinary Guard, for example. And these are the units I'm going to take to go hold this objective. Five Intercessors, for example. That's going to be... Those roles are not going to be intermixed because based on what I've seen so far with the planning the flag kind of stuff. You're going to want diversity in roles and then speciality in which units achieve each role. That's my two cents. Um, it's weird. I, I actually kind of disagree with that, to be honest with you. Um, Excellent. So, uh, at least at high ends, I've always thought that the best engineer objective holding units are the ones that are threatening another role. Uh, for example, I have quite often made my aberrants, my engineers, as James Thurkold. And what I will do is I will go plop them on an objective. And my opponent has two choices. It's either leave the aberrants alone, where they score engineer points, or come tangle with the aberrants. And the thing is always like, yeah, if the aberrants leave the objective, I don't get my engineer point. But I'm only leaving that objective to go punch someone. So I'm, I'm basically letting my opponent choose between John gets more points and he just sits there while you do nothing, or I get to swing with my aberrants. Why can't they just shoot your aberrants? You know, it, you know, ask Mark Perry why he doesn't shoot aberrants. I will do that. I'm going to go downstairs and ask him right now. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I just think that, you know, obviously, yes, they can't just shoot them. But logically, you know, maybe I have multiple unit of aberrants. Are they going to shoot the one that's on the objective? You know, you can very safely, and it'll depend on how exactly these things are worded. But for engineers, you can move from one objective to the other as you move up field. 
and is still naturally score engineer points. And if you get your engineer point, you know, it means that you didn't get in close combat. If you don't get your engineer point, it means that you're charging someone. Like those are, those are the two options. I've actually had a decent amount of success mixing roles and it probably would work better on tougher units. Um, I have actually engineered my white scar centurions before because they just sit in a building projecting threat. And I will gladly abandon that engineer point if my opponent ever gets in charge range of the centurions. And they are a little bit harder to shoot. Yeah, that's totally fair. It's two different schools of thought on the subject. I always want an engineer personally that's not going to do anything so that I won't miss it because it's not that expensive, but also it's too tough for my opponent to pick up. But you are, your, your school of thought is also there. I mean, that's, we're equating holding objectives to being engineers right now. So if that's the way it is, that's going to be a very interesting debate moving forward. You know, have they said, and I, maybe I missed something here, have they said that just holding objectives is going to take up the action? Or I, my understanding was that planting the flag, for example, was something that was tied to specific secondary missions, not tied to just getting the primary points. If it's tied to the primary points, then that probably will change my answer there. Uh, I think you're right. I think it is just secondary-based. Um, to primaries being, at least in the mission we saw, turn-by-turn turn based, that's just going to be a matter of board control, of course. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. I think that's everything I had then. So one of the things that, that I've noticed... Um, <clears throat> on primaries, at least in the the mission I've seen, and you can tell me, correct me if I'm thinking about this this wrong, but you know, you score primaries by controlling one or more objective markers. You can score primary by controlling two or more objective markers. And then the third one is you control more objective markers than your opponent controls, right? Yeah, that's very exactly how Nova is right now if you choose progressive scoring. Right. So one of the things that occurs to me is breaking parity on primaries because because you scored on your turn there's none of this like scoring it at the end of the battle round um that i can see if you have really tough stuff that you can put on an objective that's difficult for your opponent to clear out to because what i can see happening a lot is sort of on your my turn i kill a bunch of stuff and i stand on three objectives and you kill a bunch of stuff and then you stand on three objectives and we basically stay at parity on on primaries for a lot of the game depending on how the attrition goes right but if you build your list to break that parity if you put extremely difficult stuff to dislodge that you can put on an opponent's objective on their side of the board for example and just force them to deal with that i think that that's potentially a way to break parity in the mission at least the mission that we've seen um and give you a big advantage in the game because you only need to, to sort of break that back and forth one or two times and you and you probably win right so i that's my prediction i think that um durable units will have more value or plentiful units right the other way you can do that is with huge hordes um <clears throat> especially if it's like objective secured and and one of the interesting things to kind of think about is if everybody has less objective secured in their list because they have less troops because of the way detachments work, now if you have more troops, does that give you a big advantage in the game on holding objectives? So uh, it's just something to think about. It's sort of, I'm sort of wrapping my brain around like how I want to approach winning the mission. Yeah. One more thing, since this is, uh, does seem a little more similar to Nova than ITC, um, that I kind of went over in my Nova prep, was that when you hold the objectives does matter a lot because in ITC it's the end of your turn and for Nova or now these new GW ones, it's at the beginning of the turn or in the command phase. It means you do need to survive 
for your opponent's turn to get that health point. So I agree with you, more durable objective holders will probably end up being more important than they are in ITC. Because I can't just Beast run... Nurgle meta. What's that? Beast of Nurgle meta. <laughs> like, I, I can't just run 10 Guardsmen out onto an objective, get all I hold, hold more bonus points, and then they die and then I run 10 more out the next turn. Now, whatever, however many Guardsmen I put on any given objective, my opponent might just be able to kill them all. Um, and, but, you know, the flip side is that if you can run out your Guardsmen and contest your opponent's objectives, they don't have a turn to clear you out before they have to get their point. So I think fast objective holders will now be better at contesting than actually holding. Um, and the second thing besides tough units, uh, my answer to this at Nova was hold objectives with uh, characters. Was I, I had like 12 characters in my Jeans Circle list. Every objective got a character, some of them got two, and then I threw the rest of the army in front of it. And I just ended up holding them, more often than not. And uh, a great thing to note here for that strategy, if character rule doesn't change, that's totally valid. If it does change, we're going to see if that's a viable thing. Or maybe characters can't hold objectives. Maybe it has to be a, a multi-model unit. Or maybe it has to be a troop choice like it was in 5th. We'll have to see. Uh, I would actually really like it if characters couldn't hold objectives. That would make me happy. Uh, I would actually, now that I say it aloud, I would really yeah. like it to only troops could hold objectives again just because that would incentivize people to bring troops. Mm, that would be interesting. I do think you're sort of incentivized to bring troops anyway, right? Because objective security is going to be more powerful in the, I just have to have one of my troopers survive and I get to hold this unless you bring troops into this objective, right? Um, so it's it, it's kind of interesting. Uh, but I just think thinking about mission is going to be very different than sort of what we're used to. Absolutely. To, to kind of summarize it all, I think a lot of people are taking the small changes, the small percent of stuff we know about ninth edition and simply just applying it to the framework that we know for 8th. And that's simply not how it works. Ninth is its own game. 8th is its own game. While the two have a lot of similarities, we're all playing 40k here, mechanically a small change can make a huge impact. Let's take vehicles driving through walls or not, for example. It's a one-sentence rule that we may or may not know, but it will completely change how vehicles function. So now take that logic and apply it to anything in the game here. Um, and you... It's it's cool to speculate, but let's work with what we know. That's my point. Yeah, and I mean, there is a lot of unknown right now, but you know, you can take solace in the fact that a, a last cannon is still going to be strength nine, d six damage, AP minus four, or whatever it is, right? Or three, I can't remember. Yeah, we're not. We're, you're not starting up with nothing. You at least have the framework of what your codex do. Right, the math still works in the game. Uh, <clears throat> the movement ranges of things, you know, what changes? I'm sure the mechanics of you hit you when you say it won't go anywhere. They've been forever. They don't seem to be broken. <laughs> right. Yeah, you would think none of that would change. So that's all good news. And I think the last thing I want to touch on before we sort of move on to a really meaty discussion on Gene Stealer Cult is this, and that is I think the most beneficial thing for Ninth edition from my perspective is the fact that they're going to be releasing an app that presumably will have all of the rules changes as they come about, fact changes and that kind of thing, point changes, and get everybody on the same page so there's none of this like, well, actually, there is a fact on that. Let me see if I can find it for you. Um, and I think that's going to be really beneficial for competitive play, for standardization of list building, just, just for a lot of stuff. So I'm excited for that. Yeah. Um, I don't think they've announced what the app will entail, but at the very least, it'll probably have a similar to Battlescribe role. And if everyone's on the same page about how to write a list, it will make me a lot happier. Yeah, 
Couldn't agree more. I think one of the big takeaways for this whole thing is that the game is becoming more unified, which is great because that's ultimately how progress happens. All of major tournament players who run different formats, LGT is different from Nova, Nova is different from LVO, LVO is different from Adepticon, Adepticon is different from WTC. They're all going to be playing the same missions on the same terrain, on the same table. Maybe not the same exact layout per board, but the same game is going to be playing, being played, and that's huge. And presumably with GW taking over the writing of the Forge World rules, maybe that becomes more ubiquitous too. Like maybe we really do get all on the same game, right? As opposed to Europeans doing their own thing versus Americans doing their own thing. And maybe the USA can start to do a little better than averaging seventh over the last four years at the WTC. Just oh, saying. Goodness. <laughs> they probably shouldn't take their star players off. What? <laughs> oh, fun. All right, John or Nick, do you guys have anything else you want to add to the discussion? I think that uh, had everything on my mind. Yeah, I think that's pretty much all I wanted to cover here. I'm excited to see this is the first time we're going to be doing a breakdown for rules we don't know. So I really want to see how John thinks he can make GSC work in 9th edition. I believe in Lennon. So do I. <laughs> it's not, it's, it seemed a little self-serving to say I believe in John. So <laughs> I just decided to go with Lennon. All now, right. Are we talking about the singer or the 40K player? <laughs> Someone had to make the joke. Uh It's a podcast. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in to another episode of the Art of War podcast. We very much appreciate having you there. Um, Please jump on over to episode two to listen to us talk about GSC in this brave new world of the new edition. Uh, As always, that's available to our patrons. And if you haven't signed up for our Patreon yet, I will tell you that it is fantastic value and that there is over, I don't know, like 45 hours or 50 hours somewhere in there of great content that you can consume for the low price of like $6 or something. So come check it out. Uh, I think it's a worthwhile investment. And as always, hopefully you found us on the Frontline Gaming Network. But if for some reason you're listening to us somewhere else, you should check out the Frontline Gaming Network for a bunch of amazing podcasts all about the game we all love, uh, especially with a little bit of a competitive focus. All right. We'll see you all on episode two, all you patrons, everyone else. Have a great day. Like the strategy discussion you heard? Want to hear more about the tactics of this list? Sign up for our Patreon at AOW40K.com where we go deep into details of optimal play. This has been Art of War, a strategy and tactics podcast for Warhammer 40K. Hosted by Nick Nanavati and John Damaris. Produced by Seamus Ronan. Find us at AOW40K.com. And of course, connect on Facebook. Just look for AOW40K. 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 Till next time.